Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 54, Fighting Back a Bit. So, just because John had been forced out of Normandy and Greater Anjou didn't mean he'd given up the fight. Getting back those French lands remained an obsession that drove John for the rest of his life and played a large part in his problems. Much of what happens is a reaction to the financial expediency caused by John's desire to win back those lands. The chroniclers are pretty blank about what happened in that first year after John fled Normandy. But strategically, there would look to be pretty much only one possible move. An invasion through Poitou in southwest France. Poitou was of course part of Aquitaine. And while Eleanor lived, Philip felt unable to do anything about it. He'd be breaking all the feudal rules if he did so. Which meant that Eleanor's death in 1204 was mighty significant. Philip now felt at liberty to cause as much trouble as he liked. At first, he was completely successful. He had the Lusignan on his side, and in John's absence, his seneschal of Poitou couldn't hold back the tide, and he came to terms with Philip. And Poitou was lost, except two fortresses, La Rochelle on the coast and the town of Niort. But then, things got more difficult for Philip, because, horror of horrors, he came up against a group of barons who preferred to have John as their king rather than Philip. Now, it could, I suppose, possibly be that the lords of the Auvergne, Limousin, Perigord and Gascony thought John was a lovely chap, a hero, just the sort of bloke who would rule them wisely and well. Or it could be that they thought he was a long way away and rather weak, and therefore much more likely than Philip to allow them to get on with things. I know where the clever money is, but you must make your own judgment. But Philip now faced resistance. 
In addition, the Angoumois, i.e. the lands of the Count of Angoulême, gave him more feudal problems. Count Ima, the pain in the neck of Angoulême, had died in 1202. So now John held those lands in the right of his wife Isabel. There were no good feudal reasons why Philip could dispossess John of them. In consequence, Philip's southward progress finally stopped. John had absolutely no doubt in his mind about what was going to happen next. He was going over to Poitou as soon as possible at the head of a glorious army of Englishmen and Gascons. Together, he and his barons would show the French king what it meant to challenge the king of the English at arms. And it's at this point, if you listen very carefully, you can begin to hear the sound of the embarrassed shuffling of baronial feet. If you're John, you might find it difficult to find an English baron who would look you in the eyes. Because the English were not at all sure that they gave a tinker's curse about Aquitaine. It was a long way away. It was the king's battle, really, and while they wished him all the very best and all that, they weren't at all sure that their feudal responsibilities included service overseas. And they were beginning to get just a bit ticked off at having to pay for all those mercenaries to eat croissant and discuss philosophy in French rural cafes. This kind of debate hadn't happened in quite the same way before, because there'd been such a close link between England and Normandy. I think I mentioned this recently, that lords no longer had the motivation to invade France to keep their lands on both sides of the Channel. There were exceptions. William the Marshal still had lands on both sides, as did the Earls of Chester and Leicester, amongst others. The foot shuffling wasn't helped by John's distance from the barons of England, in pretty much the same way as had happened when he was in France. This is a feature of his reign and a feature of his problems. The court was populated by bachelors, household knights and administrators, men he felt safe with and who he could rely on to agree with him. Of course, no king in medieval time could rule without some contact with his barons being at court from time to time, and John maintained a perfectly reasonable lively court and all that. But throughout his reign, John is close to no more than a handful of genuinely major barons. And it's got to be said that even they don't necessarily have a very easy time of it. One of them, for example, was William the Marshal, of course. And he'll be with John until the end. But in the middle, John did his best to bring him down and humiliate him. Some of which, it must be said, William rather brought down on his own head, which we'll deal with in a minute. Then there was William de Bruce, and we talked about him last week. Elevated to the very height of power and influence and John's right-hand man, he was then brought as low as you can really get, his family starved to death, him dying in exile. There was one baron John seems close to, namely his half-brother, William Longsword, the Earl of Salisbury. But in general, there were very few people he trusted, and most of them he distrusted. There are small early signs of the trouble that John will face later already, so, in 1201, for example, John had ordered his English barons to meet him at Portsmouth, ahead of a campaign in Normandy. Instead, the English barons had held a protest meeting at Leicester, presumably complete with barons against the bomb stickers, placards and all that sort of stuff. Basically, their beef was that they'd backed John in 1199 for the crown, on the promise that their rights would be restored, since they felt that Henry II and Richard had been dangerous innovators and seizers of castles but they'd seen no sign of any change whatsoever. So they issued a statement saying that they wouldn't go across to Normandy unless John, and I quote, restored to each one of them his rights. John, of course, shouted at them, and they immediately obeyed. But it's an interesting first shot, 
the first sign of a demand for a deal. Then there were more direct arguments. The most powerful magnet of them all at this time is still the Earl of Chester, named Ranulph in the current iteration, as in so many iterations in the past. In 1204, John, starting at shadows, decides that Ranulph is out to get him. And he makes his life hell at court, which Ranulph deals with. And then suddenly, in December 1204, John ordered his sheriff to take Ranulph's lands. It all gets patched up quickly and well enough, but it added to the general air of fear and uncertainty. At the King's Council in March, the murmurings continued. John extracted an oath of obedience from them, but before they did it, they made John also swear that he would by their own counsel maintain the rights of the kingdom inviolate to the utmost of his power. This is very typical. Medieval barons are the most conservative of rebels, always harking back to a golden age of ancient custom. But John had been warned, and either he didn't care or he thought he could handle it. Nonetheless, John pressed ahead with his preparations. His preparations, after all, were not just for an invasion of France, there was also considerable fear of an invasion into England. Philip was pushing the Counts of Boulogne and Flanders to prepare an invasion fleet, and this probably helped John present the need for support from his barons, and so, in an odd sort of way, he gave him a helping hand. So John reorganises things to make them work most efficiently, and he did in general like a bit of administration. For the average historian, it's his saving grace, the evidence that there's an opportunity for a spot of light revisionism. So, in the Panic of 1205, he makes changes in the way that the old English third system works. He insisted that every adult male over the age of 12 entered into a sworn association for the general defence of the realm and the preservation of the peace. Every hundred in town was to have a constable, who in turn reported to a constable for every shire, so that forces could be gathered more effectively. OK, all sounds like a good idea. But the trouble was that the plan also allowed poor old John to scratch at the itch that was his paranoia. Because it gave him a nice way of getting all adult males over the age of 12 to swear him an oath of personal loyalty. And I reckon he probably felt he could deal with a bunch of 11-year-olds, however enraged they might be. So as the rumours of invasion escalated, so John's paranoia grew. He forbade ships in the southeast to sail from port without his written permission. There's nothing intrinsically daft or wrong about his preparations, but the language he uses is rather extraordinary. So, witness his instructions to the sheriff of the 3rd of April 1205. Jolly sensible in most ways. He tells the sheriffs to set up a system whereby nine knights would equip and pay for a tenth and the tenth, he would be the one that went and fought. Now that makes sense. He didn't want a motley bunch of half-armed losers turning up to fight, and there's a good precedence for this kind of approach from Anglo-Saxon times. He makes it clear in the writ that they would have to be prepared to fight for as long as necessary, anywhere he commands, whether that's France, the Low Countries, or the chip shop just off the Clapham Road. And again, thoroughly sensible. Feudal armies were plagued by knights saying that they'd only fight within spitting distance of their home shire, or that, yes, I know we're just about to go into battle, but I've done my 40 days, thank you, and I'm off for a spot of harvesting. But half of his writ for the levying of a force covers the blood-curdling penalties for non-compliance. John didn't trust his subjects, couldn't resist showing it, and his subjects mistrusted him right back. I have, by the way, posted the writ on thehistoryofengland.com, 
with some notes just in case you'd like to see what a royal rip from John looks like. So, in April and May, England was a hive of activity, as John prepared for a double-pronged invasion, one from Dartmouth to Poitou, the other bigger one from Portsmouth to Normandy. Royal officials bustled about organising everything from ships to nails for horseshoes, and a major fleet assembled at Portsmouth in the first week of June. 1,500 ships strong, apparently, which would be an absolute whopper for the time, so we can assume it's a vast exaggeration, but nonetheless a sizeable fleet. But poor John. For all this sound and fury, it was to signify nothing. He might have assembled a bunch of men and material, but he didn't have a fighting force. His barons had absolutely no intention of fighting. The whole thing puts me in mind of Ethelred again. Off he went, leading away, only to find that no one was following. Worse, even the most reliable of his supporters let him down. William the Marshal was still worrying about his French lands. Philip had given him a stay of execution for a few months, but that time was now up, and his Norman lands were due for confiscation. So, he'd nipped over to Paris, on the excuse of trying to negotiate a truce, but in fact to stitch up a deal. When he came back, he was forced to admit to John that he'd managed to hang on to his Norman lands by giving homage to Philip with the rather revolutionary phrase liege homage on this side of the sea. Now, this is rather like being stabbed in the back with knitting needles from your aged maiden aunt. William was supposedly the model of chivalric propriety. It was perfectly normal for a knight to owe service to more than one lord and liege homage was basically the way to identify which one of those lords was the chief lord when the chips were down. What William had done here was to get away with a formula that said John was his ultimate boss in England, and Philip was the ultimate boss in France. This is a shocker. John was understandably outraged, and he had a point. When William protested he'd done nothing wrong and was as loyal as ever, John challenged him, come and fight with me in France then. Philip shuffled his feet, muttered something about being a bit busy at the moment, and in the end was forced to admit that it didn't allow him to come to France and fight with John. John was understandably grumpy, so he called for his barons for a judgment, but they also shuffled their feet and refused to say anything. John stomped off with his bachelors, who all agreed that William was wrong. But given William's reputation at fighting, none of them were prepared to take him on in a judicial duel, so they all went to supper instead. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. But the point of this story was that it was becoming clear that John's barons had no desire to follow him to France to fight for a country they frankly had no interest in. 
Eventually, Hubert Walter, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the William the Marshal drew him to one side and threw every argument they could think of at him to talk him out of going. John was not to be swayed. So at length, they threw themselves to their knees and swore that the kingdom would be thrown into confusion if he left. John wasn't fooled one bit. He grasped that basically he was faced with a baronial strike. Weeping and wailing in shame and frustration, he was dragged off to Winchester, but was up again with the lark the following day and back at Portsmouth. Stubbornly refusing to face facts, he boarded the ship with a few companions and set sail, hoping to shame the barons into joining him by cruising up and down the channel in front of them. But at last he had to admit defeat and call the whole thing off. And so all that preparation yielded precisely zip, in the same way that Ethelred's massive preparations with his feet had failed. And meanwhile, the two final isolated strongholds in Greater Anjou, i.e. Chinon and Loche, finally fell, despite the Earl of Salisbury's best efforts. John was nothing if not persistent. He set off in his normal manner around the halls of his aristocrats throughout the winter of 1205 and the spring of 1206, and he started working on them. You might wonder, incidentally, what he did on those long winter evenings. As you probably expected, the evening's entertainment would be provided by minstrels and jesters, just exactly as you knew it would. One sour monk remarked, The great men of this land, sons of the kings of vanity, are accustomed to retain men of this kind, who have the ability to rouse those lords and their households into joking and laughter with their silly words and gestures. You'd have to think that men of this kind were in fact pretty important as far as the average aristocrat's life was concerned. Because if you think about it, there wasn't a vast amount to do for the average lord. Obviously, if you were a peasant, your time was fully employed surviving. But if you had a bit more dosh, what did you do with your time? Your choices basically were fighting, hunting, eating, sleeping, excreting and procreating and, well, really and. No trashy or even highbrow novels, no Xbox, no interweb, no podcasts. You get the point. And we have the odd echo of the relationships of these talented men of art. The Earl of Gloucester in 1180 gave a plot of land to his harper in return for a dish full of beans to be rendered annually at my exchequer at Bristol. A bloke called Herbert held 30 acres of land from Henry II for his services as a jester. And we know that Herbert's father was called Roland. And there's a record that refers to him which goes like this. The sergeantry that used to belong to Roland the Farter, for which every Christmas he used to leap, whistle and fart before the king. From which we can gather that Henry's sense of humour was reasonably unsophisticated, and we can also probably gather that aristocratic courts were also pretty unsophisticated. As Katie commented on the Facebook site, it's difficult to believe that Eleanor of Aquitaine would have appreciated this kind of humour. So maybe it's here that the cause of the breakup of the Angevin marriage originated, not in the rivalries of power or love, but in a sophisticated woman forced to spend hours watching Roland the Farter in some godforsaken castle off the Ifley Road, while where she wanted to be was basking in the warmth of Poitou, listening to tales of courtly love and the strumming of the lute. It could be, couldn't it? On the other hand, there would probably be other people ignoring the farting and concentrating on one of the two most popular games, i.e. chess or dice. Chess had reached the West from the Islamic world in the late 10th century and comes from the Persian word shah. The game was adapted to the Western idiom, 
Queen and Bishop replaced Vizier and Elephant. Sadly, just like dice and farting competitions, the general tone seems to have been something less than the kind of decorum we associate with the game now. There was plenty of gambling going on with both the dice and the chess. And as for the general behaviour, well, here's a contemporary quote. Insults are frequently uttered, and the game does not maintain the dignity of a serious occupation, but degenerates into a brawl. This reputation for the violence of games meant that they were included in the advice for crusaders, since they were supposed to stop all the things that they'd been doing on City Street and become better people. The advice was specific. They could no longer swear, play dice, wear sable fur, scarlet cloth, have more than two courses in a meal, and absolutely no women, unless they were respectable washerwomen. Anyway, as John and his companions toured round the country, gaming, gambling, wearing scarlet clothes, eating vast quantities of food, and keeping the company of women with occupations other than respectable washing, John clearly managed to have something of an impact. Because in June 1206, a substantial fleet did finally set out for Aquitaine. By this stage, although Philip's main advance had been halted, pretty much all of Poitou had gone over to him except for the city of Niort, held for John by a chap called Savary de Morléon. The 1206 campaign was undeniably a sideshow, but it seems to have been a successful sideshow nonetheless. John launched a series of raids, just to let his friends and enemies know that he was there. In July, he besieged Montauban, a supposedly impregnable hideout where John's enemies were gathered. He took the place by storm in 15 days and took a collection of powerful and influential barons and prelates captive. At this point, the Viscount of Thouar returned to his allegiance to John and brought with him most of northern Poitou. John raided into Anjou, and even as far as men before turning back. Philip was alarmed enough to bring his army down south, but not ready to start a major war. So instead, he and John concluded a two-year truce, and John was able to head home. In military terms, then, he could have some satisfaction in 1205 to 1206, mixed in with his frustrations. He'd had some success in achieving limited objectives, but what the whole affair had probably told him was that he needed more money, a stronger organisation, since his officials had clearly been overstretched, a better navy and control of the channel. On the last requirement, he'd already done quite a lot of work. He'd made sure of securing the Channel Islands and strengthening their defences and he used them as a basis for operations. He'd started the process of recruiting more ships and sailors, and he'd also employed what we might call an irregular force. Now England's history is littered with examples of having a slightly shaky grasp of the difference between war on the one hand and piracy on the other. John suffered from exactly the same problem. From 1205 to 1212, John used a man who glories in the name of Eustace the Monk, to help him sweep the channel free of the French and hold it for him. Eustace the Monk, not a bad name for a pirate, and he had an unsurprisingly colourful history. A younger son of a noble of Boulogne, he left home to study in Toledo, apparently studying black magic. I'm not quite sure what level he studied black magic at, B.Tech, degree level, master's, doctorate, whatever, but anyway, he returned home and became a Benedictine monk near Calais, which seems like an odd career for a lover of black magic, but maybe it was a case of know your enemy. Then, he pops up as the Seneschal of the Count of Boulogne, but then had a big falling out and was outlawed. After burning a few of his ex-lord's mills, 
he ran away to sea, and in 1205 captured the little island of Sark. From that point on, John employed him to raid the Normandy coast. However, in 1212, he and John fell out as well, and we see Eustace now on the French side, until eventually at the Battle of Sandwich in 1217, he was defeated and captured. By this time, the English sailors roundly detested him, and they refused his offers of vast amounts of wealth in return for his life and they offered him instead a choice between being launched from a trebuchet or dropped over the side. History doesn't record which option he took, but it's clear that he did take one and that it was his last. Since we're having a slightly more positive time with John, let's have some more, and let's talk about his reasonably justifiable claim to be the founder of the English Navy. Now, when I was a lad, I was always told that this was Alfred, but it's true to say that after the Norman Conquest, England's attempt to build and hold a navy had fallen largely by the wayside. Despite their Viking roots, the Normans weren't great seafarers, and of course the English Channel had become more like a large river, i.e. the Normans controlled both sides of it, so no need to worry too much then. So we get snatches of information about boats and boat building, such as that we know that Henry II has a boat with the Viking name of an Esnecker, We know that Richard held a fast galley for his use and, of course, built up the town of Portsmouth. John continues this tradition. He has a great ship called De La Benerie, which means God bless her, and a barge called Port Joie, which means bring joy. But from 1205, with Philip massing his fleet off the coasts of France, the need for a navy becomes much more self-evident, and to give him his due, John does this very thing. The traditional approach had always been to commandeer merchant vessels and rely on the sink ports to provide their feudal service and ships, as set up under the Conqueror. John certainly doesn't ignore this approach, and in fact he confirms the sink ports' privileges by charter in 1205. But we also see an intensive programme of shipbuilding. We don't know the exact size, but we do know that between 1209 and 1212, 20 new galleys and 34 other ships were launched for the king. We know that there were flotillas of significant sizes. One consisted of 20 galleys and 40 other ships, and used 1,300 seamen, just for example. The main warship was still the oared galley, supported by sailed cargo ships such as the cog and the bus. But the real innovation was the emergence of an organisation specifically designed to support the navy. William of Rotham effectively becomes the head of an organisation which is similar in scope to the Admiralty. And if there is a post-admiral, i.e. a military commander, it's probably John's half-brother, William Longsword, the Earl of Salisbury. So, by 1212, there was a regular fleet sailing up and down the Channel and sweeping the seas around England. The fleet was dangerous, it did its job. So we get one chance survival of a document that tells us about a raid by Geoffrey de Lucy in 1212. He took 13 Norman ships and plundered another five. Quite apart from the ships, he took wine, grain and salt from their cargoes. The culmination of John's navy was to come in 1213, when John's fleet was to win a great naval battle at Dam. So we'll leave John in 1206 still dreaming of getting his kingdom back. For the next two weeks, though, I'm afraid we become the history of not necessarily England. I'm going to do a review of the history of medieval Europe up to about 1200. This comes as a special request for Harry. 
I suspect that Harry meant a quick update, but sadly that's just not the way it goes. Anyway, something to look forward to. So thanks for all your comments and emails. Good luck and have a great week.